Hello, everyone, and welcome back once again to the Intervals Podcast, a public humanities initiative of the Organization of American Historians. I'm your host, Christopher Brick, here on behalf of the OAH Committee on Marketing and Communications, and here as well to welcome our seventh guest lecturer of the series, Dr. Megan Burke. Megan's talk, Poor Farms and Poor Health, Sites of Public Health Care in the 19th Century, introduces us to an institution that functioned like an early form of public hospital or public option in the late 1800s, dispensing medical care for those who were too indigent to afford private services and in turn calling attention to the way that poverty and public health have shaped one another across time. Drawing from her upcoming book on poor farms and using records from doctors, superintendents, poor farm admissions, and charity associations, Megan's presentation details the ways in which poverty factored into public health care provision, the prevalence of poor farms as sites of this dispensation, and she discusses their role as well in the evolution of health care policy and state formation around public health. Dr. Megan Burke is an associate professor of history at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and she is also the author of Fostering on the Farm, Child Welfare in the Rural Midwest. Her book about poor farms and social welfare is forthcoming from the University of Illinois Press, but if you're one of our listeners, you don't have to wait for the book to get a sense of the story that Megan's going to tell there. She's here to share some of that story with us today, and here she is. Dr. Megan Burke on Poor Farms and Poor Health, Sites of Public Health Care in the 19th Century. Hi, I'm Dr. Megan Burke from the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. I would like to thank the OAH and the NEH for giving me the opportunity today to talk to everybody about public health care at the poor farm. First, let's start with what is a poor farm? It's an institution where aid is provided to the poor. Throughout U.S. history, a lot of counties, townships, public municipalities have been responsible for taking care of their own poor and sick. And traditionally, counties used two kinds of aid, often simultaneously. They used indoor aid or indoor relief, which is what a poor farm provides. It is an institution where people have to go in order to receive the aid. There's also outdoor relief, which is direct aid. It can be paid out in the form of groceries or having rent covered, but it also used to include doctor's bills. The fact that that particular type of aid, that outdoor relief, became prohibitively expensive for a lot of counties, especially the part about the doctor's bills, is one of the reasons why poor farms became so popular and so common in the United States. That type of aid for sick people who needed a doctor, who needed maybe to be taken care of, but outside of an institution, before the Civil War, cost counties anywhere between 2 and $5 a week. Prohibitively expensive and difficult to budget for. It was hard to say how many people might need that type of care and how long they might need that type of care. So the poor farm kind of emerges as a popular way to consolidate expenses and consolidate the care that people in the community need into one singular institution. 
The poor farm has lots of synonyms. It goes by lots of different names. So you may be more familiar with the idea of an almshouse or a poor house. Sometimes they were referred to as a county hospital or an infirmary. And those last two are important because by referring to a poor farm or an almshouse as a county hospital or an infirmary, people were immediately making the connection between not just these sites as locations of poor relief, but also that healthcare is intimately connected with that type of relief need. No matter what you called them, because they were known as different things in different places at different times, there were more than 2,700 of them operating in the United States by 1910. That's kind of the apex number for this type of institutional care. Some were open for a few years, others more than 100 years. So some of them really have some longevity. Generally speaking, I think the word almshouse or poorhouse gives this connotation of this big kind of hulking prison-like structure where people are trapped and miserable. And there's a reason for that reputation. Truthfully, some places that is exactly what they were like. But what's interesting is that poor farm as a term really describes a majority of the institutions that were open in the United States. They're smaller. Most had more than fewer, most had fewer than 50 residents, and a lot of them had fewer than 100 residents. So they're not spaces that are housing hundreds and hundreds of people at a time. And most of them feature a farm, both for the reason that having something located on a farm was a way to acquire land um, as an investment for counties, but it was also viewed as a as an option that was healthy for people. It might get them outside, it might get them some fresh air, it might allow them to do a little bit of work. All of the counties and towns and townships, districts that opened poor farms as their resource or one of their resources for public relief, they're using them as a way to kind of replace and also supplement those previous relief tactics that were so expensive. And that very much included healthcare for people. What they looked like is important. So I mentioned the sort of image of this giant sort of menacing brick building that looks scary and today is used as like haunted houses around Halloween. But their physical structure actually makes a difference when we're thinking about the fact that they provide health care to people. They were, especially by 1900, 1910, large brick or wooden buildings, two and three and four stories tall. They usually had porches, a lot of them, for people to sit on, and obviously lots of farm and outbuildings nearby. Lots of windows, which tended to be open for ventilation when it was warm. And in a number of places, there are separate sections of the building that would be considered kind of the infirmary or the hospital ward, where sick people could be isolated or where sick people could receive their care. Some go so far as to have a separate building on the grounds that is specifically for the sick and sometimes also specifically for people who have been designated as insane but nonviolent um, and sometimes not always nonviolent. Um, but that's a very sort of 19th century terminology for lots of different conditions that today would all have separate diagnoses. The idea of having a separate building is not always a good one because sometimes those buildings are being kind of retrofitted for the purpose of holding sick people. Um, there's an Illinois County, for example, that reportedly used a coal shed as their sick house. 
They had too many sick residents. They didn't have enough space. They needed to get them out of the main building. And so they repurposed the coal shed for that use. And that's a pretty telling example. Although it's certainly not true of all poor farms, they are not always great at providing what would be considered kind of the most sanitary, up-to-date, hands-on health care. Usually at the institutions, there is staff living on site, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's medical staff. There's a superintendent, that's a person, generally a man, not always, but usually, who is in charge of the institution itself and usually also the farm. His wife tends to be hired in the position of matron. Their family usually lives on site, and there are staff, especially domestic workers and farmhands, who also sometimes live in the institution or on the site. Some of the designs for poor farms not only separate and segregate out the sick from the main residents, but they also segregated and separated people of color so that institutions had separate wings or separate wards for black residents and then different ones for white residents. But in Southern poor farms is where you're more likely to find a cottage style design for the entire institution. So instead of having perhaps one large building that is segregated inside, there would just be separate small cottages on the site as a way to segregate black from white residents um, so that all of their living would be done in those separate spaces. That's not always the case at Southern poor farms, but that is where the cottage system is most likely to be found, although not exclusively. Interestingly, although it was done to separate people based on race, it also was a way to help keep the contagion of disease uh, lowered a little bit because people weren't living in a large congregate style institution. The population of a poor farm and their needs as kind of healthcare recipients changes over time. And it's an important demographic transition. Before the Civil War, there are roughly even numbers of men and women inside U.S. poor farms. And in some places, actually, women outnumbered men. The average age of those residents is around 40 years old. But in the period after the war, the average age of poor farm residents increases every decade. And the ratio begins to heavily favor men. So that by the 1910s and the 1920s, the population on average in U.S. poor farms is between the ages of 55 and 60, and it tends to be men. Poor farms housed lots of different types of people. It's one of the reasons they were heavily criticized as being terrible places, because it's sort of combining all of these different folks in one space. But we're talking about transient laborers, homeless people, the elderly, uh, women abandoned by husbands, orphans, single mothers, people who have been designated as insane, people with disabilities, and the sick. County officials, local officials, made determinations about who was allowed access to the resources of the poor farm, and that includes the resources of health care. To give you an example of how this access can look different for different residents, there's an account from a Texas poor farm of a Black resident who is noted as being very well-liked by the other institutional residents and by the management, but despite that designation, he lives in a jail building out back. That is how his housing situation is described. And here is the sort of 
healthcare circumstance that he finds himself in at the end of his life. He was suffering and had been suffering for quite some time silently with a rectal fistula. It was so severe and he had been dealing with it for so long that when he finally reported the problem, nothing could be done to help. The doctor finally came, saw this man, declared there was nothing to be done, and that was just sort of the end of it. That isn't typically the type of health care that you would expect to see in poor farms being given to white residents. But because he was physically isolated from everyone, there was also a sense that his condition was being isolated from view and also from anybody who might have bothered to step in and help provide him with some type of health care. The ailments that bring people to poor farms can include something serious and a sort of end of life circumstance like that man's condition. But the menu of things that contributes to people using a poor farm runs the gamut between chronic conditions that will eventually kill someone and acute injuries and acute illnesses where people will recover at the poor farm and then go out and lead potentially productive lives where they're able to self-support themselves through work. I thought it would be useful to go through some of the ailments as a sort of snapshot of a one day in a poor farm. Here is a one day snapshot from a poor farm in California uh, during the early 1900s. So on the list of ailments that residents were suffering from are the following. Hearing trouble, broken bones, rheumatism, paralysis, female trouble, asthma, tuberculosis, varicose veins, kidney trouble, bad cold, bowel trouble, flu, and sore hand. So just one kind of snapshot, that's the range of illnesses that people at that place and that time are dealing with. What's interesting is if we switch times and we switch places and we use a different kind of menu option of ailments at a poor farm, it will look very similar. So I'll do that so that everyone can kind of see what I mean. At an Ohio infirmary, as they were known in that state, in the 1870s, the intake records labeled roughly 50 reasons why people were there. And out of those 50 reasons, 20 of them were just listed as general sickness. So something's wrong with this person. It's a health problem, but we're not going to say what it is. But then there's a whole list of other very specific conditions. So out of the 50 reasons, we've got 20 general sickness and then the following. Broken leg, strained ankle, dislocated hip, very sore foot, bruised thigh, rheumatism, sore foot cut from axe, heart disease, sore throat, fever, shot in hand. So some of those are injuries and ailments that people are probably going to recover from, and some of them are probably going to be long-term issues that may prevent people from working or being able to find work. Poor farms took in people who lacked funds for health care, but over time, people who cannot afford to see a doctor, who cannot afford to have problems taken care of properly, it's a compounding issue. Being poor can be expensive because things get progressively worse because they aren't fixed when it immediately happens. They cause larger debilitating issues later on that just sort of build over time, build even over the course of a person's life cycle. And so at one point they can build to a 
a moment where that person can no longer work and can no longer support themselves. And so the poor farm kind of exists in that space where sometimes the effects of being poor over the course of someone's lifetime come to pass that at the end of their life or toward the end of their life, they are so severely sick that they need somewhere to go because they have nowhere else to be. Combining all of these people together, people who have shot themselves in the hand or someone shot them in the hand with people who have rheumatism so severe they can no longer work and take care of themselves with people of um, all sorts of conditions and circumstances that bring them to a point where they need institutional care or need relief of some kind. That combination that Poor Farms provides assistance for all of them is one of the reasons that reformers really tended to be critical of poor farms. There are plenty of other reasons to be critical of poor farms, but this combination is one of them, that they're not just sites of providing health care. They combine people who need health care with people who are just out of work or homeless or perhaps, you know, moving from place to place to find work. What's interesting is that most places, especially in the late 19th century, lacked hospitals. This is particularly true in rural areas. So in the 1870s, we're talking about roughly 120 hospitals across the United States, not serving rural areas, really any of them. And although that number increases exponentially by the time we get to the early 20th century, most hospitals are still not located in rural areas or serving the needs of rural people with healthcare. And so poor farms existed in that void. It's one of the reasons why so many of them were smaller in population, serving, again, less than 50 and less than 100 people and located on a farm. There is a need for healthcare and there is a need for relief that poor farms are fulfilling. There are lots of connections between poor farms as institutions and the need for public health care. First and foremost is that idea I mentioned earlier, where the expense of caring for the sick is a strong motivator to open an institution. The goal here is to keep your doctor's expenses as low as possible, keep the healthcare expenses low. And if you have a lot of sick people in one space, the doctor can make one visit, see multiple people, and then he won't charge the county to say, go to five or six different houses over the course of a day. Poor farms provide services for acute illness, chronic illness, injury cases, so people are recovering at the poor farm and leaving, and people are coming to the poor farm because they are not going to recover, and essentially they need a place to die that is safe uh, and not out on a street somewhere. Chronic illnesses were difficult to care for at home, especially if the person who had the illness wasn't a member of your immediate family. Caring for chronic illnesses can be expensive. It can be time consuming. It adds a lot of work to people's day, particularly women. It increases laundry. It might change what you can serve at mealtime, or you might have to provide special meals for people. And so that type of care tends to be reserved for people's very close family members. So a lot of the people who use the poor farm for healthcare needs are people who are either separated from their families by distance, or who do not have any immediate family willing or able to provide that type of care. 
I think it's useful to think about how many people we're talking about. So we've talked about how many institutions we're talking about. But in 1890, the census reported that there were 73,000 people living in almshouses on a single day. So that's the single day census number of 73,000 people. 13,000 of those people were reportedly classified as sick. But interestingly, another 8,800 of those people were classified as crippled, which is a phrase that really encompasses a lot of different circumstances and conditions and was not itemized particularly well. So it's hard to know what kind of care those people needed. But we're looking at, you know, roughly in the neighborhood of 20,000 of the 73,000 people who might need some type of specialized health care. What's interesting is that in addition to that single day census number, during the course of a year, roughly 70,000 additional people would have used poor farms. They would have come and gone already. So if we then kind of multiply this example forward, we're really looking at maybe closer to 150,000 people in the course of a year who have used a poor farm for some length of time. And more than 20,000 of them, or again, roughly a quarter, who need some type of health care while they're there. They're dealing with sickness or perhaps uh, some type of disability that may require a little extra assistance. The notion that health care and poverty are kind of inextricably linked was important, not just in our current moment today, but also historically. Social welfare reformer Amos Warner, who became kind of nationally prominent for his studies of poverty, tried to classify the causes of poverty. What was it that made people poor? And he expressed kind of genuine surprise that sickness appeared to him to be the leading contributory factor for institutionalization. So what he meant was that Overall, homelessness was the reason most likely to be given by someone who was coming into a poor farm. So a majority of people are reporting, if they report at all, that they're homeless. They have nowhere else to go. But Warner's saying here that he's shocked that sickness and illness is the leading contributory factor to their institutionalization. It's not just that they don't have anywhere to go. It's also that they're sick. And so those things go together. So he lists illness as being a very significant and complicating factor for why people are poor. And then as an extension of that, why they are struggling to stop being poor. So he's sort of entering into that debate about whether people are worthy or unworthy of aid and whose responsibility it is for their plight. He's saying, you know, according to my examination from the late 19th century, this is an issue of people being poor because they're sick. When counties and locations decided that they were going to use an institution to kind of consolidate their relief efforts, it's interesting that they used it for other things. So we have counties that build asylums on their poor farm property. We have counties that build hospitals or pair a hospital with their poor farm. And poor farm property and buildings are used as quarantine sites for disease outbreaks. That kind of brings me to my next point, and one that I'm sure people are sort of curious about given our current moment. But during the 
flu epidemic of 1918 and 1919, poor farms are a major kind of player in the public health care scene. Counties faced increasing aid costs during that pandemic because more people needed to see a doctor but did not have any money for a doctor. So they see more people in need kind of asking the county to cover those health care costs. But they also saw poor farm populations increase during that pandemic. Some poor farms actually locked down for resident safety during that outbreak. So they won't let visitors come in. They didn't allow merchants to sort of deliver things. Um, they tried to kind of reduce the time that doctors came in and out of the poor farm because if the doctor had been out seeing flu patients, they didn't want the doctor in the poor farm. So we see them trying to cope with not just an influx in people who have a need for their services, but also trying to take care of the people who already live there. On-site quarantine space at poor farms was perhaps surprisingly common. Smallpox outbreaks, typhoid outbreaks in communities often meant that poor farm space was used as a way to house people who just couldn't take care of themselves at home for that period of time with the hope that they would recover and then be able to go home. Um, but they needed a place to be. And in the absence of hospital space for that recovery to take place, counties did often use the property of the poor farm because it was already in their possession. They already had it staffed and it was a way to kind of provide temporary shelter and quarters. Another kind of outbreak or epidemic issue that poor farms dealt with regularly was tuberculosis. It pops up on that kind of laundry list of reasons that people are there. Tubercular patients were common in poor farms, even though specific facilities were developed to take care of them. But having tubercular patients in with the general population of poor farms could obviously be dangerous because of how contagious tuberculosis could be. So at some poor farms, there are tubercular residents who are kind of segregated, especially for sleeping and their kind of lounging area uh, tends to be in the infirmary if there is a separate space for that. Other conditions that were dangerous or troublesome at poor farms include typhoid. Uh, people with syphilis generally considered or labeled to be unworthy of relief, um, no matter whose fault it was that they had syphilis. Um, they pop up on poor farm records from time to time but not with the regularity that you might expect when you read kind of progressive era accusations about poor farms, that they're just sort of housing everyone with syphilis. They're actually, there are cases of syphilis amongst poor farm residents, but it is not uh, nearly as common as it might seem um, from critics who are angry about poor farms and the type of care that they provide for certain types of people. Most poor farms, even though they're dealing with all of these different sort of healthcare issues, are not staffed 24 hours a day with healthcare specialists. So the work is being done mostly by staff, by superintendents and their wives, the matrons, the hired help for the house, if there is any farm hands, if there are any of those. So there's one kind of affecting case of a Nebraska matron. The poor farm takes in a family of five. They are suffering from typhoid, so they are very sick and they are very contagious. So she takes the whole family to the sick house, which at this poor farm happened to be a separate structure. And because there is nothing else to really be done, she stays there with them. 
And she does not go back to the main institution until all five of those people, unfortunately, they died. Um, but she stays there with him the whole time at enormous danger to herself so that she doesn't bring that disease back to the residents of the poor farm who included her own children. You know, her family lives there because they work there. Um, and so there are lots of accounts of the health care provided at poor farms being done by normal people who are not trained in any sort of healthcare profession, but because their job is to take care of the people who live there, a lot of times that means fulfilling different types of healthcare jobs. There are doctors and nurses, but the hiring of them and how poor farms are staffed with healthcare professionals is interesting. County officials usually hired a doctor on contract. Frequently, actually, doctors bid on the county poor farm business. There are two different contracts that most commonly pop up. One is to pay a doctor for every visit, a set fee. So let's say it's $3 a visit. And so every time that doctor comes to the poor farm, he's going to make a minimum $3. That is the best case for the doctor. That is the worst case for the county. Counties really, if they were being fiscally very responsible, would pay a doctor annually. So a set fee for the whole year, including an unknown number of visits to the poor farm to deal with an unknown number of cases. So this way, in most circumstances, the county's really going to get their money's worth out of this contract. And those kind of negotiated fees that they were dealing with before a poor farm was constructed that kind of sneak up, they can't predict, they don't know how much things will be. That contract of the annual fee was meant to really mitigate that problem. Being the poor farm doctor was not necessarily the most prestigious position a physician could have. One critic had this to say about uh, doctors providing that service. The country doctor has usually been some man who needed the practice so badly that he would underbid every other physician in the county for the work. There's some truth there in the fact that doctors did have to bid for the contract and typically the lowest contract won the bid. But from a county's perspective, the lowest contract is a cost-saving measure and healthcare expenses for poor farms were still pretty steep. In 1900, all of the county poor farms in Illinois, and almost every county in Illinois had one, spent $27,000 that year on doctor's bills, a not insignificant sum of money. And frequently, if there was a financial problem or a lot of people staying at the poor farm, the depression of the 1890s is a great example of this. Poor farm populations increase, the need for all types of relief skyrockets. And so county officials are trying to figure out ways to sort of cut expenses. And in a couple of counties in Ohio, county officials reported they were going to try to minimize the number of visits to the poor farm made by the doctor because they were paying on that different type of contract. They were paying on a per visit fee contract. So consolidating all that into an annual bill was much easier. Despite the idea, at least by this critic, that you're going to get the worst doctor who needs the business the most, some poor farm doctors appear to have done a very conscientious job. 
one doctor from a Texas county said, I have done what is in my power to mitigate the sufferings of these unfortunates and smooth their pathway to the tomb. He's really talking about what we would talk about today as palliative care. But part of his job is to deal with those chronic cases and chronic residents who are essentially there at the poor farm to die, and it's his job to make them comfortable. Interestingly, poor farm doctors are also consulted about the conditions of the institutions. They pop up in records continually. They're being asked by state officials and county officials, how are things? What are the meals like? Are the residents well taken care of? Do they have enough bedding? Do they have enough clothing? Because the doctor is a person who, although he's affiliated with the institution, it's not his job to feed people. It's not his job to make sure they're clothed. And so he's sort of an interesting checks and balance on the management of the institution. And in that capacity, really had the power to make conditions for residents, whether they were sick or not, much better than they might have otherwise been. Nurses do show up on poor farm records, but they are more commonly there after about 1910, definitely into the 1920s. So nursing is often provided by the staff often the female staff, but even sometimes the superintendents are reportedly giving um, various types of health care to residents, which I'll talk more about in a minute. Nurses are also more commonly found on the bigger institutions staffs. So places where there are more than 50 residents, more than 100 residents are more likely to have someone listed specifically as a nurse. In California, they did something interesting where not only do they pair the poor farm and the county hospital, they do that very early, that pairing, but they also used nursing students as a way to get some more professional nursing into the institutions overall, kind of as a practicum experience for the nursing students to the benefit of the residents who needed the care. I thought it might be helpful to talk about a few specific poor farm doctors to sort of just give a an interesting image of what this job could be like and how the care was for residents. I'm going to start with George Palmer, who was a poor farm doctor in Illinois in the 1870s. And Palmer is a great example of somebody who made things better for residents by being kind of an outspoken critic for what he saw in the poor farms when he visited. So Palmer, um, gave a lot of testimony about improving the diet and nutrition of poor farm residents as a way to improve their overall health. And at one point, he's kind of testifying to a group of people about all of the different poor farms that he's visited in his capacity as a poor farm doctor, because um, he'd done some visiting in other places. And he had this to say, one Illinois county has a contract with a dentist to pull the teeth of poor farm inmates. There is no provision for saving teeth. If the inmate is writhing with toothache, he must take his choice, lose a good tooth on contract or grin and bear the pain. The supervisors can see no reason why a pauper should want to save his teeth or why he should be permitted to do so. And yet a cheap filling would cost little more than the primitive and mutilating operation of extraction. So not only is Palmer advocating for things like better food, he's really honed in on this one circumstance where there's no reason to be pulling people's teeth, but they think it's cheaper and easier. And so that's the tactic they're taking. They're not fixing a toothache. They're not trying to kind of medicate or take care of it by saving the tooth. They're just going with the easiest sort of like cut rate dental care available. 
About 30 years later, after George Palmer, T.O. Hardesty is in the same region in central Illinois. And in the 1910s, he is leaving behind very detailed medical records of some of the residents he's encountering at the poor farm. To give you an example of the scope of his work, in 1914, Hardesty treated 106 poor farm residents, and he did that over roughly 35 visits during the course of the year. So he's there fairly often. What's interesting about the records that Hardesty left behind is that it shows a clear kind of engagement with the eugenics movement. Hardesty was most interested in those patients he was seeing who he considered to be feeble-minded, which at the time was the kind of catch-all term for any number of different conditions, all of which would have different diagnoses today. But Hardesty is attributing some of their body movements, um, sometimes physical disabilities, and sometimes um, seemingly sort of intellectual disabilities or psychiatric conditions to this notion of people being feeble-minded. His foray into that is unique. There are other doctors who used poor farm populations as a sort of study pool, but Hardesty leaving behind these very distinctive records is interesting. He doesn't seem to have treated any of his patients badly or in a way that could be perceived from the records at least to be unethical, but that was not true of all poor farm medicine. As a way to kind of introduce this idea, there's a record from Wisconsin that I'm going to use. This is from the 1880s. This record was left behind by the superintendent, who was actually the person providing the care to this patient. And here's how his condition was described. A leg has decayed so that the bone below the knee was entirely severed and pieces of bone came out. He was a very offensive case. Worst case ever had for stench. So we have someone whose leg is rotting away. And what's being recorded by the staff is that it's really gross for them. There is almost nothing about what it was like for the patient who did, if you're wondering, pass away as a result of that condition. And so we get a very kind of clear sense, I think, that sometimes the care is perhaps not the best, perhaps not the most compassionate. The, I think, sort of penultimate example of this is Dr. Alvin Fowser from Summit County, Ohio, who in the 1880s was one of the poor farm physicians serving that farm. He was indicted for body snatching. And in the course of the investigation related to his work as a potential resurrectionist, he was also accused by staff and residents of possible malpractice. Essentially, when they said they implicated Fowser in hastening the death of residents as a way to increase his body snatching business, Fowser, uh, in the kind of complaint that was filed against him, he's accused of stealing bodies out of the poor farm cemetery and then selling them for $5 a person, $5 a body, to medical schools and colleges across the state of Ohio. Fowser vehemently denies these charges, and he's never brought to trial for the body snatching because a subpoenaed witness mysteriously just doesn't show up. Um, and, you know, there's any number of things that could have gone on there. 
but he doesn't actually get to go to trial. So we don't get the full picture of what the case against Fowler was going to look like. But the investigation after the indictment indicates that not only did he seem to help speed up death by not treating people who were sick, not giving them medicine, not providing them the care that people thought they needed. He's also accused by residents and their families of trying to charge them double for their care. So he's paid by the county as the poor farm physician, but he's also trying to charge people's families to visit them at the poor farm and take care of them. So he's double billing. He certainly seems, at least based on that kind of cursory glance, to be a fairly unethical poor farm doctor, and he does lose his position at the infirmary as a result of those charges. As you probably noticed, not all of the health care that's provided at these institutions is done by doctors and nurses. There's a lot of sort of matrons and superintendents and staff taking care of residents. J.S. Myers from Wisconsin was the superintendent who wrote the account of the man with the leg condition. And his diary of his job provides an extra glimpse at what it was like to be a staff member at a poor farm dealing with just the normal day in and day out of poor farm stuff in addition to the healthcare needs of residents. In 1879, Myers reported there had been an outbreak of disease at the poor farm. He doesn't detail specifically what it is, but he did say that it was requiring between two and three hours of his time every single day. This is on top of him running the farm and running the institution, which had between 75 and 100 residents usually. At the same time this is going on, his infant daughter dies of cholera and phantom. And while he's dealing with the child's illness and then death, he writes that the farm was gripped with illness and he administered medicine all day to more or less all of the paupers, some of whom are very bad with dysentery. On the day his daughter died, he wrote, the sick need almost constant care. But there was no nurse on site at this poor farm. Other types of cases that would have required a lot of care or input from the staff include a family group that came to an Ohio poor farm in 1880. The family had seemingly been suffering with illness, but also malnutrition. The mother dies and the three youngest children are taken to the poor farm. And at least one of those kids is suffering from rickets. So rickets, we know we're looking at a nutritional deficiency of some kind. She's not able to fully recover. And there is some type of undocumented physical disability as, the re as a result of those rickets. And so she spends the next 30 years in that poor farm as a resident. So she grows from childhood to adulthood in that institution as a result of the illness. While she's there, there is another case of an older man. He's a Civil War veteran. He is dealing with a condition that is described in the records as not just scurvy. He has scurvy. It's affecting his teeth and gums. But he's also dealing with chronic diarrhea that is causing a rectal problem. This is the type of case that would have been really difficult for poor farm staff to care for because of the amount of cleaning that would need to be done. But it's also the type of case that would have been hard to take care of at home. And obviously it wasn't going very well because he also has scurvy. So he's not getting enough to eat of the right things. And he's dealing with this disease that probably would have benefited from a special diet of some kind. He's in and out of institutions. He goes to the veterans home. He goes to the poor farm. 
he's not able to self-support. These type of cases litter poor farm records. And so the staff is taking care of people with lots of different circumstances. In Kansas, state visitors found a superintendent who was tube feeding a resident and another who was sedating sick residents, both without the immediate supervision of a doctor. Kansas provides some interesting cases because staff were paid more when residents had specific health care or nursing needs. So there's actually an additional stipend um, when people need additional care. The poor farm clearly fills a fairly important void in public health care needs for a long period of time. But where did the poor farm go? By the early decades of the 20th century, poor farm residents are getting older, as I mentioned before, and with their age comes more illness, sometimes of a more chronic type. This increases the healthcare costs for counties and it complicates their care. They need more things and they need more specific things. This is where the structure of the building kind of comes back. When you have ambulatory cases, people who need wheelchairs, people who can't get up and down stairs, a large two and three and four story building is not particularly suited to the type of care that older and infirm residents need. Poor farms truly begin to close in large numbers after the Social Security Act. Recipients of Social Security initially were not able to live in publicly supported institutions like poor farms. And over time, and it happens fairly quickly, between 1935 and 1945, hundreds of poor farms close across the United States. But some of the funds that were going toward poor farms are transferred to other types of public institutions, county hospitals, for example, but also county nursing homes, reflecting the fact that residents are older and they need a different type of care. Often, county nursing homes were actually built on the site of former poor farms. Um, sometimes it's an easy way to figure out where the poor farm used to be if you can figure out where the county nursing home is or was. It's not always the case, but it is sometimes. Then there's a steady pattern of closures, the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, as more federal, federal funds were made available for public health care, elder care, and rural hospitals. What's interesting is that when we think about the space that poor farms occupied in the public health care spectrum, especially in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there are similar voids today. Today, rural America is dealing with an absence of health care providers, dealing with the closure of hundreds of rural hospitals in the last decade. And interestingly enough, a few poor farms remain open today. They're not called poor farms anymore. Typically, if they're still open, they're known as county homes. But the county homes that do exist in a few places, um, maybe just a dozen, a few more, are serving a very similar population as the sort of last generation of poor farms did. They're serving adults with certain disabilities. They're serving people who need public care but are not eligible for other public programs and older people who perhaps need something like a nursing home, but no space is available for them, and so they're at the county home. So there is still this gap that poor farms used to fill or help fill that is still taking place today across a lot of America. Thank you. As easy as it is for me to appreciate a lecture as 
wonderful as uh, Megan's, I have to say that uh, I am even more grateful for what a fantastic guest she was to host for the Q&A. For those of you who are interested in data, this conversation, uh, we had to pare it back quite a bit. It went long past an hour. It could have gone long past two hours if we had let it. Uh, Carrie and Yokota was with me and Megan as well. So all three of us were making rather merry and I hope you enjoy. Here it is. Megan Burke, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here today. Wonderful. Wonderful to have you. And it's also wonderful to have our wonderful chair of the Marketing and Communications Committee, Carrie Ann Yokota. Welcome, Carrie Ann. Thanks. It's always great to be here and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, well, me too, um, because Megan, you taught me a lot about social provision in the public health context, right? And so that is, we, a lot of the talks in this series have focused on aspects of social control. Um, The thrust of your talk is really about like social provision. The first thing that came to mind for me as I listen to your talk and then re-listen to your talk is that quotation in the beginning of the Charles Dickens quotation in the, in the beginning of A Christmas Carol. He says, are there no prisons? Asked Scrooge. Plenty of prisons, said the gentleman laying down the pen again. And the union workhouses, demanded Scrooge. Are they still in operation? They are still. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law in full vigor then. You left me a real sense of what these settings were like. Yeah, it's... um. I use the phrase sometimes that it's the sort of place that you wouldn't choose to go, but if you need it, you're glad it's there. Um, because it almshouses and poor farms, particularly there is a need there and they differ a little bit as they develop over time from the English workhouse system. So if we stepped farther back in U S history, you would, you would find, or you do find a lot more overlap between that kind of Dickensian, very cold, big, crowded, um, everyone kind of, you know, like unraveling rope to be recycled into something or, you know, picking rags. There is very much this ethos in the United States about working for care, that if you need something, you have to work for it. But there's an interesting transition that happens over time, and it is not necessarily a conscious transition. I think it is a transition of necessity that the people who are coming to local governments, counties, townships, towns, need things and they need them because they cannot really do much of anything. Um, They have been injured. They are sick. They are homeless. And so in some ways, it becomes kind of a stopgap measure. And in that capacity, when counties and towns decided to invest in a farm to use as their institutional care provision option, they're doing so not necessarily because they're confident that the people who are going to stay there can work those farms. You know, farm work is hard. It's physical. It's taxing. That's true for men and women. It's true for hired hands. It's true for every children who are doing farm work. And so they don't necessarily think that they're going to be able to run a, you know, 100, 200 acre farm using the people who live there. What they're hoping is that the farm will offset the expense. It will provide food. They will be able to sell some of the extra products and it will offset the relief expenses that they are experiencing already. 
Because in right. a lot of there's there's no uh, expectation that this is something that's owed to anyone by virtue of just their membership in the community. Yeah, I, you know there are, there are examples of places where they were expecting someone to work, but you have to kind of look and and see who they're asking that of. Um, so sometimes transient men, um, people who were accused of having a drinking problem, they're expected to do some work. Because the notion is that their behavior is in some way kind of causing them to then need this assistance. But when you look at an institution that is full of um, elderly people, the sick, um, women who are alone but with a couple of children, they are not your, you know, you're not going to staff a farm (laughs) with those people. You're just not. Um, But you had kind of asked about the physical space. Um, because that's one of the things when people think of a workhouse, when they think of an almshouse, it is very Victorian England because we have visual markers, you know, cultural markers of that movies, film, things like that. A lot of poor farms in the U S were smaller. They look, um, some of them start as modified farmhouses, you know, two and three story, um, where they keep enlarging them over time. So they will, add a wing here, and then they'll add a wing over here. And so the most common physical design is a three or four story building that has um, the shape of maybe a, a C or an E. And those wings are designed to kind of separate people inside the institution, most often by gender. They didn't want men and women mingling inside that space. Um, but there were also ways that they use that to physically segregate people based on race, um, depending on the location of the institution and really the kind of tone of the county government itself. And then it is an operating farm, most of them. Um, there's a, a kind of max number that I use in the book. It's about 2,700 is where it's the best estimate I have for how many poor farms and almshouses were operating in the U.S. at one given moment. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot more than people realize because they're local. Um, so <sighs> yeah. local municipalities have those places. A lot of the origination for the policy itself seems to be happening at the local level, at the county level. And um, and then each of these institutions is going to to look different and be different and bear different kinds of resources and uh, services because it sounds like every county might have had some some built one of these at one time or another or hosted one of these at one time or another. Uh, And there's but I, I can't think of an opportunity I've ever had to go see what one of these looked like. So I just want to hear your reaction to, to those two questions. Uh, I'll start with the latter. You can visit some of them. Uh, a lot of counties let them crumble. And a lot of counties, you know, the value of the institution, like the tangible value was in the land. And so when it came time to sell the farm, they just sold everything. Um, They, you know, farm land is expensive in the United States, especially in the latter half of the 20th century when a lot of these places closed. Uh, So some of them just were allowed to dissolve where they stood. But there are some that exist um, in the eastern part of the United States. There is actually an article someone documented how they had been repurposed. And many of them are private family homes, which was fascinating. Um, in the Midwest, a number of them are county historical societies. Like the, the society is housed inside the poor farm. 
Um, that's true in a number of places in Ohio, um, Michigan, you can see the structures, you can go inside. Um, they've preserved some rooms so you can see how they were set up. Uh, I found one out, um, on the barrier islands that is both a County historical society and a wedding venue, which was a fascinating repurposing of a poor farm building. Um, so they, they are up. You can see some of them, certainly not nearly as many as used to exist, but, uh, you could. And then to kind of get at your, your previous point there, micro history, I think is going to become increasingly important when people want to talk about social provisions in general, there is no clear dividing line for when places or if places decided we're going to stop one kind of aid and start another kind of aid, especially when it comes to healthcare costs. That is a web that is very difficult to pick apart because they built institutions to house sick people, to house poor people. Then they built more institutions to separate them based on condition. But they're still giving out money. They're still paying doctor's bills. They're still covering grocery costs. There is no outside of large cities where private charities were able to kind of rationalize how direct aid was given. When it came to county governments doing that work, they did it case by case. So if Mrs. Smith down the street has a sick child and if the county pays for the doctor's visit, she can keep working and that will keep them in their home. They pay for the doctor because it's more costly for them if Mrs. Smith and her kids become a complete dependent on the county. And so they're making those choices. You know, if somebody breaks a leg at work and he's going to be laid up and the family might starve, they're going to send a doctor to set the leg. They may pay the grocery expenses for a couple of months to get them back on their feet. And they're making a real kind of localized cost analysis of whether direct aid, direct health care expenses, whatever it is, whether that's going to be cheaper for them in the long run rather than institutionalizing someone. And so it's interesting to watch them make those moves because it's not something that we really associate, especially by the time we get to the progressive era. Everyone's talking about this sort of like rationalized charity and we're not doing direct aid and this makes people lazy. And then you look at the local records and county governments are just writing checks. Um, and they said, look, we can't afford to institutionalize everybody who falls on hard times. So you do whatever you're going to do and the control then kind of lies with us to do what we're going to do for our people. Well, if I can follow up and go from micro history to a macro um, view of your topic and uh, and your lecture. So we started the conversation with what I think everyone thinks of is you know, the Dickens and the, the Victorian English um, uh, model of the poor house or the sick house. And I was wondering if you could just provide kind of a schematic or a general timeline of how an English, so this, I'm a transatlantic historian, so I'm always thinking about comparisons and contrast between the two systems, right? So how do you get from this uh, Victorian model in England to the current socialized medicine NHS system um, versus, you know, the American poor farm 
morphing into the healthcare system that we have in the United States today? It is, that is a complicated stage of events, but I, I will streamline it as best I can. Um, people here started using the English poor law model. That is the blueprint for the British colonies. It's the blueprint for the early states. And state after state decided that any provision for the dependent needed to be localized. It needed to be county-based or township-based. And so that law, that idea of a law was passed down from the East to the Midwest, to the South, to the West. It moved as people moved. And so for a long time, local provisions were where it was, um, especially at the county level. But around the turn of the 20th century, there is a kind of a diversion where uh, we see unions and um, other kind of fraternal societies concerned about their memberships, health and safety life insurance policies, widow's benefits, they start to kind of dip their toes into our members as a collective, our members as a group, what provisions do they need? And so that turns into we, if you join us, we will help pay medical benefits. So they start becoming kind of brokers of healthcare for particular groups of people. And this becomes kind of an early group insurance plan it it isn't but it, it you can sort of see the the beginnings there and so there are groups of people in the united states who benefited from that um as you joined into some sort of uh, kind of shared expense program but one of the big changes came during the great depression where there is a real need to or a desire to move aid and provisions away from the local governments who are broke. They're out of money. And so they're struggling to figure out how they're going to deal with the volume of need. And there has been a burning desire on the part of the progressives, uh, some of whom are influencing New Deal programs, to rationalize it in a bigger way under a bigger umbrella. And so this is kind of the moment where they see that opportunity. But there is no socialized health care that comes out of that plan, in part because of the resistance to certain New Deal provisions by the Southern Bloc, uh, those Southern Democrats at the time. They do not want to share any of those provisions with African-Americans. And so when there are programs that are sort of designed to help lots of different poor people who need assistance, they are always at loggerheads. So the system that develops is this very kind of disjointed, it gives power to the states to use federal program money for things eventually like Medicare and Medicaid, um, for things like in our food stamp program, there's federal money there, but it's state administered. And the same thing is true of some of these other, like the hints of socialized programming that the United States has, that power sharing comes from this desire to keep things segregated and to keep power at the states where they could kind of hyper segregate how they spent that money. And that has been um, a bit of an Achilles heel the whole time. So that move from local or group identity shared systems, instead of moving directly into some sort of federalized program, ran into this blended state federal 
concept. It was the only way the legislation was going to get passed. So they did it. Um, and it comes up in all kinds of different programs, aid for families with dependent children. Um, it, it, you can see it, you can see it all over the place. And so it's, um, there are lots of really good books that, that do a much better job than I did of no, that, rushing that through that, but it's really good actually. And it's a recurring theme, not to cut you off, but it's a recurring theme in so many aspects of American history, it but is. it's, it's interesting to think about how two societies, which come from the same origin. So this is an Anglo American colony, how they could diverge so dramatically in the case of the type of healthcare system that is developed in both countries. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting pattern, um, and it's it's we are still dealing with the long lasting and long reaching effects of that today. Um, this this sort of woven together system where there's a lot of tangled jurisdiction, uh, and it's interesting that. In the 19th century, the late 19th century, there was not a lot of tangled jurisdiction for poor farms and what they were providing to people. Uh, it was, you know, like your municipality was was in charge there and the state might sort of send some visitors around to check things out. But because there was no state money involved, states had very limited abilities to kind of course correct or make recommendations. Um, every once in a while, they would try to send standardized architecture plans for a new infirmary, a new hospital, a new poor farm and county officials, you know, would look and say, no, thank you. <laughs> or sometimes a more stern, like get out. It's not your money. It's not your plan. We're going to make this decision because we're paying for it. Um, and so when they stopped paying for it, they also lost control of how it was going to run. Interesting. Um, you brought up AFDC, um, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, and, and this is sort of uh, a spinoff of, of where Carrie Ann was going with her question, because I think that's an important one. We, we've talked a little bit about race. Is, is that sort of the, the variable that is... is that accounts for, you know, in good part, is that, is that what, I mean, that, that to me would seem to be one of the, the biggest distinctions, the, our system of racial hierarchy versus what exists in the United Kingdom in the early 20th, late 19th century, uh, where privilege is sort of more arranged along class lines and along status lines. I'm just curious, is that, is, is race a very central variable in explaining those two distinctions that Carrie Ann was suggesting in, in her question? You know, I, it isn't exactly. Um, by the time we get to the 20th century, it very much is, but I'll explain my answer there. It is clear that in the Southern states, it can be more of a variable. But it's very difficult to figure out why certain counties decide to open a poor farm at all or don't, um, and how they decide which populations will be allowed to benefit from those resources. There are clearly counties, and this is true in the Midwest as well, where they're not welcoming to anybody other than white people. But they never explain why that is. And so then you look at the demographics of the county 
And you can see that clearly over the late 19th century, some of those counties are essentially becoming like sundown counties. They may have started with a more diverse demography. And by like 1900 and 1910, the diversity has left. And it it's clear, you know, the historiography of uh, racism not being a Southern problem. You can see that people are moving. So in the institutional setting, there are poor farms where that aid is being given to whomever. And then there are poor farms where it isn't. And I can't pinpoint for sure that there is a a meaningful action on the part of anybody that is like making that step. There's no clear distinction between why one county in Alabama has a a sort of two-part poor farm, one serving black residents and one serving white residents. And then two counties over, they have a poor farm, but it's only for white people. You know, in the same state, in the same area, it's a it's a very localized choice that they've made. And the same is true in Ohio. You know, you can it, and pick a state. You can look at one record and you'll see some different groups of people. Pick another record. You might not see the same thing. So it's hard to really confidently say like, aha, they, they are making these choices based primarily on this one particular issue. I think it's definitely true in some places and then possibly true in others. Yeah, and just I... Uh, the reason that aid to families with dependent children, that program in particular, you know, brought me to that question is because I think about how intensely, you know, AFDC is the only title of the Social Security Act later repealed uh, in 1996 and during the the Clinton administration. And um, uh, I think it's it's impossible to ignore uh, how implicated the racialization of that program during the 1980s in particular uh yes. the, the Reagan Bush years him you know talking about welfare queens and the like yes. um and they uh, vary you know like in that example Chris they very specifically are making a definition about worthy and unworthy and they are crafting that around a sort of race-based narrative and in the late 19th century especially in counties, there is less discussion about worthiness. They they are more likely to identify it as behavior-based and not sexualized behavior, not implicit sort of like single mothers. I've, they're not they're not pinning down that these people cannot be in here because they are bad. They're just looking at somebody who needs a meal and a place to sleep. And so in we go. And, you know, it's, it's that idea of worthiness in the eighties. They didn't say it that way, but that's exactly what they meant. They're, they're hearkening back to this kind of late 19th century idea of worthy, poor and unworthy, poor. And they're setting a new baseline for that based on both race and then perceived behaviors that they are going to make those connections to. Um, and so that's, yeah, I definitely, I definitely see the connection there. Well, and I wanted to um, ask you to talk some more about um, the Southern uh, um, states and the transition from slavery to um, what you're talking about, right? So, if if you know, if you, I'm thinking about slave history, the historiography of studies of slavery, right? And one of the points is that under this dehumanizing and brutal system of chattel slavery. 
Um, the one thing was that when a, a individual was too old to keep working, they did not put them out on the street to die. You took care of aged um, slaves. And that after um, the Civil War, this wasn't the case. So you, you basically see um, uh, the replication of this brutal, you know, the the whole brutal system of exploiting labor, but without the social, the, the having to take care of um, aged slaves. Now, that I, it's not my field of study, but that's what you read in, in just the general historiography. And so I'm wondering if you, in your work and the origins of your story of the poor farms, if it talks about, if you, you've talked about that transition from a slave system in the South to social welfare and how, um, if you could tell us something about how the South or former slave owners um, thought about or talked about this social responsibility for former slaves. Yeah, they they do not talk about any sort of social responsibility for the formerly enslaved. Uh, what they do do is set up a system of sharecropping as the kind of labor option of choice, which is you know a captive labor system that is controlled through racialized violence and endemic poverty, and they are hesitant and unwilling to give a lot of aid direct or otherwise or indoor um, because they want those people to stay and work and they want them to work for as little as possible. They, so regionally speaking, the South as a region has fewer poor farms on a kind of county by county basis than other sections of the United States for that reason. Um, it is, it, it draws from a kind of long history of Southern municipalities not necessarily paying into any sort of collective activity at all, especially not one that would be used by everyone. But there's also this issue of the carceral state in the South, um, the rise of imprisonment and then prison labor and chain gangs and convict labor. People who would have stayed at a poor farm in other parts of the United States, let's take transient laborers just as a as an example, lots of transient laborers coming in and out of poor farms in other parts of the country. They're moving for work. They don't have a place to stay for the winter. So they go to the poor farm and they hang out. And then in the spring, they go back out and work. Transient laborers are not welcomed in the South, and you are certainly not allowed to be a transient black male laborer in the South because that's how you end up in prison. And they are very clearly imprisoning people in some of the southern states that in other states would have maybe wintered at the poor farm. So there is a distinction that has to be made between like, why aren't there so many people in poor farms in the south? Frankly, it's because some of them are in jail. Not because they've done anything wrong, but because laws have been designed to put them there so that they can labor for free. No, so I'm there's so glad a connection you there. You brought that yeah, up. There, I think that's so important to, to link there those is two a systems. There. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's different. Um, but it is it's also the case that when poor farms or any sort of kind of social institution, when it has been made most unpleasant for certain groups of people like black Americans who in some places, when they are admitted to the poor farm, they are put in an outbuilding or they're kept in a basement or they, you know, have to stay in the attic as a way to physically segregate them inside the institution. 
they do not want to go there because they are going to be treated badly. And there is an awareness of that. Um, and so it discourages people from using those institutions if they know that it's going to be akin to, you know, essentially sleeping on the street anyway. And how that is interpreted sometimes by the, the sort of white power structure is see those people can live in much greater poverty. They can do with less. They will take care of each other. Well, of course, if that's the alternative, if you were going to stick them in a disgusting basement all winter, then I will certainly do my best to not have to go there. So when the treatment is substandard compared to the treatment of other poor farm residents, when they're not given the same health care, there are a couple of examples in the, in the podcast lecture of, you know, black poor farm residents not being given the same health care provisions that the other residents seem to be given. So no, I would not choose to go there necessarily unless I absolutely had no other option. And the way that that is filtered is, see, everything's fine. They can handle it. They don't need to be here anyway. Uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts. Um, and so those, those two things are very important distinctions um, of why there are some, there are some substantial differences there. And is there um, in the early 19th century in the North, were there poor farms or their equivalent? And would immigrants be treated in similar ways um, to people of color? Or, or it, I'm trying to draw these um, comparisons between regions, but I'd also, I mean, ultimately what I was hoping to be able to talk with you about is the how the responsibility of the state extends to what or how how it extends to what groups of people and i think today we are talking a lot about those who are undocumented but living within the the nation state within the borders of the nation state and as a society how do we define who we are responsible for taking care of and is it based on in this case we're talking about racial differences but also i think it's an important thing to talk about um, st citizenship status and in the 19th century these things were in the early 19th century at least these things um, citizenship it was much more fluid right and we didn't have the modern um the passports and the visa system so maybe that there was less of an issue but can you tell us a little bit about that and about who the state feels responsible for yeah in the antebellum period there is a lot of discussion about immigrants using almshouses and poor farms, who those immigrants are. Um, the Irish, of course, take it take it on the chin during those discussions. Um, people blame them for increasing the need for these structures. There was recently, I guess it was maybe a couple of years ago, there was um, a book. I think the la author's last name is Hiroda. He wrote a book about um, Irish expulsion out of the United States, particularly Boston, New York, paying to deport people. And they used almshouse populations heavily to find people who they wanted to deport saying, look, you know, you're a public charge, out you go. After the Civil War is over and the number of poor farms increases, counties have a bigger need to their building structures. They're developing that kind of localized system. They're still discussing 
whether it's native born or immigrants who are in those places. And they start measuring it. So by 1880, that's the first year that the U.S. Census does the special census. It's the very kind of offensive and notorious. Um, it's for delinquents, idiots, um, the insane. They, they refer to it as a special population and they pull out a separate section to count and categorize institutionalized people, but also people living in homes with their families who have some sort of condition. And so they start taking demographic measurements then at, you know, the 10 year intervals of poor farms, how many people are in them on a given date and how they break down in terms of age, race, nationality. And probably to the surprise of no one, regions of the country who have immigrant intakes, have a higher population of immigrant poor farm residents. But one of the interesting numbers that they pulled by 1903 or 1910, they asked those immigrant poor farm residents, how long have you been in the United States? I think expecting that the answer would potentially be, oh, we just got here. You know, it's that whole like we're letting people in who can't self-support. But the number actually people had been here. They were older people who had been here for more than 10 years and their ages were higher. They were they were just simply, you know, immigrant born people who had been here for quite some time. They had worked clearly. They were sick. They were old. They couldn't support themselves anymore. And so they went where all, you know, a lot of native born people went, which was to the poor farm. So I don't think that they got the result they were expecting, but it also you know, you can see states over time maturing in that statistic. So um, in the 1880 census of special populations, you can see some of the newer states that are bringing in more immigrants, especially from Europe, um, places like Minnesota out in the plains, some of those homestead states, their poor farms in that decade seem to have more immigrants in them than they do in 1900 because people are settled. They've gotten citizenship. They've been here for a while. So you can, you can see the change over time and it weakens the argument that folks tried to make about immigrants as public charges, because that does not necessarily bear out in the records um, and official records, not just kind of anecdotally from County to County, you know, the big kind of composite records they were taking, um, it's in a couple of decennial censuses, it's less than half of everybody in an alms house or poor farm is an immigrant. Um, and it changes over time a little bit, 1890, um, there's a little bit of a, a fluctuation, but, um, it's, it's an interesting statistic. They, I think they really, I think some people really had would have hoped that they could have proven that some of these immigrant groups are definitely to blame for this dependency problem that we have. But statistically, uh, there was not enough evidence to use poor farms or almshouses, at least to make that case. They're taking care of everybody. And, and it's interesting, too, like county by county, you can see which immigrant groups have come to the county uh, and how that changes over time. I I did not know about this special special census. Oh yeah, this is fascinating stuff. So, could you just talk a little bit more about that? So, I think the most notorious, uh, at least to nineteenth century historians, is this, is the eighteen eighty version of dependents and delinquents. 
So they did the normal census and they marked in some cases when they thought that someone in the household could be classified as a special category. So you can sometimes see this on the manuscript version as people being marked as insane or idiotic um, is the terminology they would have used. Um, and so they're, they're marking it. And then they went back and took a special count where they itemized county by county, township by township, those people. And they tried to specify the condition, uh, depending on who the enumerator was, some of the records are more thorough than others. And obviously some families were less inclined to provide that information to them. Um, but if somebody was classified as being feeble-minded, um, they wanted to know why. Was it from birth or did something happen? And so you can see sometimes people writing down, like, you know, was kicked in head by horse or, you know, blind from birth, but they, deaf, blind, they they are running through the kind of categories um, and it's, it's a very fascinating document of its time. It's very valuable for medical historians, social historians, but it, um, it is not duplicated in that exact form ever again, but they do start asking different questions in the census records that follow. Um, so you'll see people marked, especially if you look at institutional census records where they, you know, they go to the building and they enumerate just like they would in someone's household. And so they run down the list of everyone and then they mark, uh, you know, what potential condition might have brought that person to that place. Um, and so they're, they're kind of keeping track. The, the terminology itself, poor farm, right? The word farm connotes also uh, rurality, agrarian, um, uh, is any of that kind of pastoral mythopoetics of the, 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 you know, the, the health inducing effects of, 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 of the countryside and, and the frontier, if you will, the wilderness, um, is that implicated here, that kind of ideology as well? It is to some extent, um. Yeah, the the agrarian ideal. So for a lot of people in a lot of places, a farm is just a very utilitarian space. Um, where you see it most substantially is at those institutions that were paired with an insane asylum. The language of what sort of agrarian idyllic is best for is best exemplified by insane asylum care. Poor farms took care and housed a lot of people who were classified as insane and especially those considered uh, harmless insane, uh, which meant that they didn't necessarily need to be restrained. Um, no violent outbursts to speak of because poor farms don't have they don't have the staff to take care of that. They also usually don't have the equipment. Uh, that's how they got themselves into trouble in the antebellum period. They were restraining people. They were caging them. They just didn't know what to do. But there were some poor farms that on the same property, there was a county asylum or a separate building. And so the language of what outside farm, idyllic, fresh air, healthy work is good for is very evident there. Um, you know, they want old, sick, poor farm residents to enjoy it. Um, but in terms of therapeutic value, it is it is always very closely tied to um the work and the opportunities 
of able-bodied, you know, a heavily charged term, uh, able-bodied insane or the, um, the feeble-minded who are still able to, you know, contribute something. And so they're the groups for whom that is seen as being most useful. It's peaceful. Yeah, the um, the healthcare aspect to this. These are healthcare delivery systems, right? Um, when does the transition happen from what you describe as poor form? Like, when does that terminology start to disappear, and what causes it to happen? So there's a there is a transformation that happens at some point to what you call hospital or nursing care. Um, and what happened to the people who were living there when that transition occurs? Um, I guess this is a three-part question. And um, and what kinds of sources are, do we have sources that, that speak to that experience? The transition happens in a couple different stages. Um, early, early 1900s, even into the 1890s, there are a couple of places that mandate a name change. Uh, Ohio and California are the two kind of largest entities that do this. Ohio switches theirs to infirmaries. So you have the such and such county infirmary. They haven't made any changes to the institutions. They didn't go in and build a hospital to connote the name. They just thought it sounded better. It was less stigmatizing. And California uh, opts for a county hospital title. So sometimes they're, they're jointed county hospital and poor farm, um, or county hospital and home. And so they're, they're sharing that, that sort of space. So fairly early, some places are saying, you know, this, this whole poor thing has a, a strange connotation that we don't like. We don't want to shame the people who live there. Um, which kind of speaks to Carrie's earlier question about who deserves care in the state's eyes. Sometimes it's care, but also kind of respect. Like, how do we refer to where these people live so that they don't have to feel ashamed of needing to live there? Um, but then by the 1930s and 1940s, especially, the effects of the New Deal start to kick in. The poor farm population had gotten older. It was more common to be a home for the elderly. Their nursing homes uh, were private. They they weren't really a thing yet. And so lots of elderly people who didn't have anywhere to go end up at a poor farm if they are poor. Um, and so two things happen. One is that there is additional money for county hospital construction that starts coming out in the 1940s. And so you're going to get federal and state money for a county hospital as opposed to a poor farm. They're not going to give you any money for the poor farm. And so there's a move to try to move patients, residents from the county funded institution into something that is state or federally funded because it alleviates the counties of that expense. But there's also a role that Social Security plays. In the original version of Social Security, of course, lots of people are left out. Uh, domestic workers, farm workers, they're excluded. They make up a huge population of poor farm residents. Um, but you couldn't accept your social security funds and live in a publicly funded institution. So it cuts poor farms off at the knees. They can't have people taking their social security check and then turning it over to the county. So lots of counties immediately tried to figure out how do we get these people who are eligible for social security out? <laughs> we don't want to pay for them anymore. So they 
there is a, a noticeable increase in the number of nursing homes, um, private, also some public, um, church-based homes, fraternal homes, wherever they can kind of shuffle people out to, even boarding homes, uh, you know, someone who has multiple rooms in their home, social security recipients can move in there and then pay rent and get their meals, you know, paid for. So they kind of almost go back to an earlier system. So that that is an a very significant change that happens over time. And there is a, a move by the 1950s and 60s, if counties still have a poor farm open, they sometimes will transition it into the county nursing home. Because so it, it's really a reflection of the population at that time and what they need. They need long-term nursing care uh, and not necessarily much of anything else. So there are records. Interestingly enough, there are uh, oral histories, people who worked at the institutions during that time who recounted what it was like. But there are also some really interesting records from the institutions themselves. So nursing home records get into some issues with HIPAA, but poor farm records do not. And so at a couple of institutions where they made the move from a poor farm to a nursing home, the nursing home was on the same property. The county already owns the land. So they just sort of build a new building and they shuffle people across the yard. And now you live in the nursing home. And they did the same thing with the records. They just picked the record books up from decades worth of poor farm residency and they plopped them over at the nursing home. And so there are some people from the 1970s and 1980s who had lived at the poor farm for like 40 years, who when they died at the nursing home, the nursing home staff went back to the poor farm record and wrote it down because the intake record for that person was in the poor farm ledger from the 1940s or 1950s. And so they didn't have like a nursing home intake record. They had the poor farm record. So they just hopped right over. And wrote their obituaries stuck inside some of them. There are little notations. Some of them are really lovely. Um, very nice memorials about, you know, this was a very kind person. Um, you know, she enjoyed these things. The staff will miss her very much. Still that like, interestingly personalized. Right. You know, so like, even really in the institutional knew. side of the records, yeah. in some cases, you're able to derive yes. a little bit of the the substance of, of, of who the patients were and who the recipients were. Yeah. And to just to kind of finish your question about how the residents felt, um, they struggled a little bit. Some of them, um, they talked about how this was their home. They didn't want to leave. They were afraid. They weren't sure about the new building. Um, you know, people who were just as an example, who had their vision impaired, they had memorized the poor farm so they could get around really easily because they'd been there for so long. And so they were intimidated, sort of didn't know what to expect. Um, and so there, there was some hesitancy there about, moving on to a new type of institution that was less familiar than you know, the kind of pseudo home that they had been in, some of them for an extended period of time. I wanted to, um, Megan, give you a chance to talk about um, part of a part of the lecture um, that dealt with quality of care, of medical care um, in these poor farms. And I'm wondering if there'll be podcast listeners uh, who, like me, as they're listening to your lecture, started, was reminded of um, the stress of choosing one's insurance plan. 
<laughs> um, and I, when you're talking about it and trying to link um, budgetary decisions with the method of paying the doctors with quality of care, I'm thinking about, you know, the HMO versus PPO um, versions of healthcare, right? And um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And I thought you did a good job. You're trying to balance um, giving us examples of good care doctors that were truly caring and comparing them with doctors who were you know, selling bodies. So you had extreme examples on both sides of the spectrum. But again, I think modern day listeners will, at least I did, um, think about the different uh, choices that we have to make about quality of care and, and budgetary concerns. By and large, as a generalization, I think a lot of the doctors that provided care to poor farm residents did a conscientious job, understanding that there may be very little they can do to fix the problem, but they certainly might be able to provide people with some comfort. Uh, I also think they provided a little bit of companionship, which is interesting. Uh, you know, one of the things that comes up in 20. 20th century nursing home experiences is the loneliness. And poor farms can be lonely places. Um, but the doctor is somebody who, by virtue of coming, you know, weekly, monthly, they see that person regularly. And so you can tell there are sometimes relationships that are building at least some familiarity. I think they, many of them did the best they could with, you know, the time that they had to be there and the condition that people arrived in, some of which are, you know, it's not fixable. Um, and so by and large, I would say that those people were fairly compassionate, but the residents themselves have no choices. Um, sometimes they can ask for a doctor and one won't be sent for because there's a judgment on the part of management about, do you really need a doctor or are you just fussy today? Um, and even the doctors will say, uh, there's there's a record from Illinois. The doctor says he always wants to see me and he's, you know, nothing doing is the sort of like very like rural expression. There's nothing really wrong with the guy. He just like feels like he wants that that sort of attention. Um, but they have no no choice in the matter at all. Well, I think that's very heartening that you found that. Um, but it, I, I wanted to get at the idea of, um, in America, at least in the United States, the idea that to get great. So it's good. Like I said, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you found that um, as a general rule that there were compassionate healthcare providers. And I think it's true today as well, that they're really, you know, most people are just trying their best to, to be, to help their patients. However, because of the way the um, healthcare system in the United States has been set up, there is the idea that only the rich get the best care. Whereas, you know, you compared, I've spent a lot of time in Great Britain and in the UK, and I, I really, you know, press people there. Like, so you, even rich people use the, you know, NHS. Yeah. Even rich people have to wait to get uh, surgery. That's not, you know, emergency surgery. Yes. Everybody waits in line. So it's a completely, or at least in my, my opinion, it's a, maybe not a completely, but it's a stark difference in the way, um, people there versus here are thinking about, um, one's wealth versus getting top-notch care. And you know, so, so beyond just not having a choice, that idea that, you know, you have to be rich to get the best here. I, I'm wondering if, 
you know, how your study kind of um, can inform us or, or, or help us think through these ideas or these problems? So at the time that counties were paying doctors on a contract to be the poor farm doctor or to be the doctor that did the direct aid visits for people who couldn't afford one, people in the states with money would just pay the doctor to come see them at their beck and call. They would have a family doctor who they paid. Um, and some of the best early hospitals in the United States are private hospitals. They are not public. And the public hospital is where you definitely don't want to go. Uh, they are not nice. They are not clean. They are not considered to be appropriate sites for any sort of health and recovery at all. And so private money definitely he heavily influenced uh, what kind of healthcare people got. There is an interesting, it doesn't come up all the time, but a little sort of tidbit of resentment sometimes amongst taxpayers, not rich taxpayers, but just your average sort of everyday person. When the poor farm residents get something like a doctor who automatically comes, you know, every week to check on everyone, um, or when something happens, a doctor will be called for them and taxpayers are covering that expense. Um, you, every once in a while, pick up in a newspaper story, uh, you know, it must be nice to be at the poor farm and have the doctor come when you call them. Because for a lot of regular people, that's an expense they're really not going to do unless they have to. Um, you know, in, in rural areas, it often required you to leave, go get the doctor bring the doctor back with you. It's hours worth of being in a wagon, being on a horse. Um, it takes a long time. At the poor farm, those visits are fairly regular. And it's not, they didn't make those complaints just about doctors. Um, when a poor farm installed indoor plumbing and rural residents of the county didn't have it yet, you get people saying like, oh, it must be nice for the poor people to get plumbing because I don't have that yet. And so you, there's, there is some back and forth about what is being provided at taxpayer expense versus what a taxpayer is sort of eligible to get with their own money. Um, you know, the, the counties usually are pretty clear about talking, they're getting a bulk discount, you know, they're taking care of X number of people at X number of dollars, but there is definitely a, uh, a have and have not system when it comes to access to doctors, access to good hospitals, clean hospitals, nursing care, things of that nature. Um, how did they handle health related issues like pregnancy or mental health? I mean, these different, you know, subgroups of, of uh, patients and patient care, patient needs. Pregnant women are arguably the most kind of contested poor farm residents. There's a lot of concern about poor farms taking in pregnant women, single pregnant women specifically, that that would somehow, if, like if you're going to take care of them, it will encourage more of them. It will encourage them to get pregnant. It will encourage the behavior because here you are sitting here as this maternity hospital. You know, the truth is that there are more women giving birth at poor farms in the 1880s and 1890s than there are by the 1910s and 1920s. And that's when the real outrage kicks in because the eugenics movement has sort of latched on to this issue of institutionalized women reproducing institutionalized populations of people. Um, and so they're very upset about pregnancy in poor farms at a time when there aren't really many pregnancies in poor farms anymore. But 
It is an outlet, especially away from cities where there is no other outlet available for women who get kicked out of their home, women who don't have a place to go. Um, and in some ways, although cleanliness at poor farms is not something that they were known for, that's also true of a lot of homes, a lot of farm homes. Um, you know, women in rural areas worked sometimes right up until the moment they gave birth. And then sometimes the day after they're back at it. So when we talk about conditions, you know, is it better to go to a poor farm? Why would you go there? Frankly, I can see why having a bed having people around you and having maybe like a couple of days to just be able to recover with your child would be a benefit to some women who were looking for a safe space to give birth. The other thing about poor farms is that they did not necessarily always take custody of babies. Frequently, young women, if they wanted to, left with the child. That's not always the case. Um, but you see lots of single women leaving with that baby. And I don't know where they've gone all of the time. I don't always know what happens to the child, but it's a way to retain custody at a time when if you went to a place in the city, if you went to a religious home, they may take that child from you as a sort of part of you being there. So that's, it's one of the interesting aspects of kind of specialized care at the poor farm. They do not provide any mental health care services. They they house and contain people who are dealing with mental illness, who are dealing with um, cognitive disabilities or intellectual disabilities. Um, they would have not labeled them as that. Um, but they are not treating them. And so when asylums open and then become more prevalent uh, at the state level, you know, state funded asylums, poor farms try to send people there. They want to get them out of the poor farm, get them into state custody because it's a money issue. Also, the state's going to pay for the state care, but the county has to pay for the county care. Um, but those state asylums fill so quickly with people who are considered incurable that states actually start paying county poor farms to take them back. It's how you end up with county asylums in some places. The state has literally paid them by the person to take care of them instead. So there's this shuffling of people that happens. And some of the shuffling is um, women of childbearing age who are considered to be disabled or mentally ill. The state wants them because they're going to contain them. They're going to control their sexuality. They're going to ensure they think that they won't reproduce. Obviously, later that becomes sort of forced state-sanctioned sterilizations. And then when those women get older, if they're still in institutional custody, they ship them back to the poor farm. Because then if nobody at the poor farm is babysitting them all day, it doesn't matter. So there, there is a, a, an intertwined relationship between you know different levels of institutionalization, different labels for conditions at the time. Um, but poor farms were multiplicitous institutions. They house all kinds of different people all together, which is one of the reasons people disliked them. They thought that, you know, specialized care for each sort of category of people was the more appropriate option. And poor farms are the opposite of that. They're combining the old and the sick and the young and the pregnant and the temporarily homeless, you know, everybody all together in the same space. And that's considered, uh, you know, a, not a best practice for the late 19th century, especially. Is this what you're working on now? Um, I mean, uh, you are so knowledgeable. You really know this material and this content inside and out. 
Um, and so, so what, what are you, you know, doing with yeah, it at the moment? The, the book will be out at uh, the end of this year with the University of Illinois Press. So it's it's done. It's ready. It's almost ready for everyone to Yay. see. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> That's great. And actually, I, my my relationship with Poor Farms is long lived because my first book is about dependent children and their kind of institution to farm uh, care network. And some of that starts at Poor Farms. Um, poor Farms are not good places for children. They don't want dependent children living in them. So they figure out ways to get them out. And so that relationship um, is not exclusive to poor farms. Poor farms pop up in fostering on the farm. Um, but I became very familiar with how the records looked when I was working on that project. And so I, I immediately knew, like, I will be back for you. <laughs> I'm going to cycle back around because um, there's so much more there um, than just kids. It's, it's this huge sort of population spread. Um, and I have a feeling... Maybe not this next go around, but I'll I'll revisit some of this again because I'm curious. There are people who who aren't at the poor farm who also um, were considered kind of public dependents, and so I'm curious to kind of dig into that a little bit more when I have a chance. All right, well, Madam Chair, I think this may be the first Q and A we've done that went past an hour, and oh, no. I mean, it could no. I mean, sorry. it's because we have so many questions because <laughs> you're so interesting to talk to, and you've left us with so much, uh, you know, to keep thinking about, and I, it sounds like to research because it sounds like you know the, there's a lot of content there to to mine, to explore, to publish about. Uh, you're doing that, but um, it sounds like they're. There's so much more. So room. much more work. So much more room. Area. Yeah. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you very Great. much. Yeah. Thank you. Megan Burke, everyone. And that's a wrap. Please join us again next week for this season's very last smallpox lecture by Dr. Kelly Hacker Jones entitled An Eruptive Fever Comes to Muncie. We'll catch you then.